The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. The Bible every week? I said, yeah, I do, but, but not in the same way. I'm talking about the Bible from the Bible. Usually I talk from the Bible about the gospel. And I believe that Psalm 119, which is where we land this morning, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has more verses than any other chapter of the Bible, more words than any other chapter of the Bible. It's huge. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to try to cover all 100,000 verses in 30 to 35 minutes. Are you guys ready? Okay. The tech director told me today, he said, so is this one of those sermons where you go crazy like you're on drugs? I said, nope. It's one of those sermons where I go crazy because I'm on caffeine, which is a legal drug. No, I didn't drink that much caffeine this morning. So we're going to pray. We're going to jump in to our conversation about the Bible. And if you have any questions uh, during today, because a lot of people have questions about the Bible, um, p- please feel free at some point in the sermon. Uh, my number will be up on the screen behind me. You can text your questions in. Don't text me if you just need a friend. I got enough friends. Um, but you can text your questions in. We will answer those questions at the end of the service. And if not, we will make a video and put it on the website after this weekend is over. So let's jump in. Father, I thank you for your word. God, it is a treasure. It's a wellspring, a fountain that gives life. Lord, I pray that today you would speak to us through your word, about your word, and the importance it, it plays in our lives. God, I pray that we would not have dusty Bibles, that we would not have unused Bible apps, that we would be people drawn in and captivated by the stories and the letters and the songs and the wisdom. Lord, I know what your word has done for me. I pray that it would do the same for others in this room this morning. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen. Uh, The Bible is the most popular book. Many of you know this in history. There are approximately 5 billion Bibles that are circulating the world uh, that have been sold in all time. We sell approximately 100 million Bibles each year. It outsells Harry Potter. It outsells The Purpose Driven Life. It outsells every other religious text. And there, I, I was having a lot of fun with this because it is such a prominent book. It plays such a deep role in so many people's lives. I went and found some quotes. Um, so here's some of my favorite quotes. Uh, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. That's Augustine of Hippo. Theodore Roosevelt said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. Kids, don't use that with your parents. It won't work, but you could try. Uh, Helen Keller said, unless we form the habit of going to the Bible in bright moments as well as in trouble, we cannot fully respond to its consolations because we lack equilibrium between light and darkness. First, for a woman who is blind, it's, it's very insightful. One of my favorite scholars, Mr. T from the A-Team, said, hmm, on my downtime, I take a shower or listen to the Bible on tape. I mean, I feel like that's weird because there's an or there. I take a shower or listen to the Bible on tape. But anyway, that's a separate thing. Uh, Johnny Cash said, I read novels, but I also read the Bible and study it, you know. And I should do this in a Johnny Cash voice. And the more I learn. No, that's Elvis voice. I got that wrong. Okay, and the more I learn, the more excited I get. That's Johnny Cash. Uh, One of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon, said very famously, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. I want to read that again. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who 
isn't. Now, unfortunately, I forgot to bring, I was going to bring my very first Bible that I got when I, uh, before I became a follower of Jesus. I was going to a youth group, and my grandma bought me a Bible, and I had just gotten into calligraphy, so I wrote like Ryan Tyrona with my new calligraphy pen. I have amazing penmanship, said no human ever. Um, but I have this Bible still, and I remember when I became a follower of Jesus, I, as I've told many of you, I didn't know the rules, so I had this Bible. It was a student NIV study Bible, and it had hot pink letters that said student, like they had done it with a paintbrush. And I was so fired up to get this Bible, I began reading it, and I was all excited about the stories, because I didn't know about David and Goliath. I didn't know about uh, the Samson and Delilah. I didn't know about all of these characters. I didn't know that there was a whole book of poetry, and I didn't know that I would come to love it and lean on it later in life. I didn't know all of the details of Jesus's life. So I began reading this Bible. Now, I didn't learn the Bible rules, though. So this is God's word. And as such, depending on which tradition you come from, um, you view this a little bit differently. This video that I was showing you today is part one of six in a series that teaches what the Bible is and how to read the Bible, because I know reading the Bible can be very difficult. One of the things I didn't know was that you were supposed to be kind to the physical Bible book. Because when I became a follower of Jesus, I loved the Bible, I read the Bible, but I remember taking my Bible, and at the church where I became a follower of Jesus, we had, um, the whole back of the church was the youth side, like they put us literally in the back, um, because they didn't, the adults didn't want to see us, and so we had to go up these stairs, it was three levels, first floor were classrooms, second floor was like middle school and college, and then the third floor were, was the high school room. We're talking third floor with a balcony, and you could just look down and wonder, as a new Christian, how high would a Bible bounce if you let it go and it landed flat? So there we are. One day, me and my friends, um, we'll just call ourselves Tweedledee, Tweedledum, and Tweedledumest. I'm Tweedledumest, okay? And, um, and we're, we're, we're tossing our Bibles off of the third story balcony. And we have someone down there like this, like a legit competition. Six inches! One foot! It got intense because it only took about three Bible tosses before one of the leaders. So if any of you have ever been in a youth group in a church, you know that you can, it's like the lottery with uh, youth group leaders. Sometimes you get the nice, kind leader. Sometimes you get the leader that's like um, Judge Judy on steroids. Okay, and that, that was, this was Judge Judy on steroids. She came up and she said, here's your Bible. You cannot throw this Bible off of the third story balcony. And I was a new believer, and I was extremely sarcastic. I haven't outgrown one of those things yet. So I said, oh, man, that's so weird. Can you show me the verse about not throwing the Bible? Because my pastor said, if someone tells you not to do something, you say, show me the verse. And it's in one of those moments where, like, real life fuses with cartoon life, where you see, like, the red go up. I don't think it was fully cartoon. I think it was pre-aneurysm stroke thing happening. And the steam was coming out of their ears. That was probably made up by me, but it felt that way. And I said, well, if I'm not supposed to throw the Bible, you need to show me where it says that. Because the pastor said, this is my only source for life and faith and things that matter concerning Jesus and living for him. Needless to say, um, I wasn't super popular with that particular youth leader for quite a long time to this day. Okay? However, however, as time went on, I stopped throwing my Bible. 
because I realized I, I like my Bibles. And um, we read that quote from Charles Spurgeon, a Bible that's falling apart is often the sign of a life that's not. So my friends and I really wanted to have worn out Bibles, but we didn't want to cheat. We didn't want to like tie a rope to it and just drive around with the, in the street behind our cars. We wanted to actually read it. So I, I need to understand here, just so I have a litmus of who we're talking to. How many of you have been involved in some sort of church for more than five years? Okay, and how many less than five years? Okay, that's perfect. So we're going to start reading. And because this is the longest chapter, I'm not going to read all of the verses. There's 178, uh, 76 verses. We're not going to read all of them. We're going to start in verse 1. Here we go. Blessed, happy, blessed. You can interchange those. Are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Everyone say law of the Lord. Okay, cool. You're listening. Blessed are those who keep... His testimonies. Everyone say testimonies. Okay, these are just descriptions of God's word. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts. Everyone say precepts. I just wanted to see who said it like me, over-enunciating. To be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, not statues, there's another word, then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now you'll notice in this chapter, it starts with Aleph, and then we read those eight verses, and then it says Beth. And then you can read to verse 16, then it says, Gamel. Now, this is uh, a Hebrew poetry, and what they did is they took the Hebrew alphabet, and they started, each one of these psalms in the Hebrew language begins with the letter of the alphabet, so that they would remember this psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's about God's word. So I think that God wants to drive this in. It's the only chapter in the Bible that uses this type of literary device where they say, okay, we're going to make a song about the word of God and we're going to use the letters of our alphabet so that it drives into the kids. It, and we do this today to teach our kids to read, right? I've got uh, one kid that can read. I've got one kid that can only read the first three pages of a book about the Hulk. And then I've got Savannah. And I don't know if she'll ever read, but she... Uh, and Silas, we're teaching them letters. So we say, A is for apple. How did you guys know that? B, it gets tricky here, is for? See, this is, depends on where you grew up. Because some of you, I just heard, you need Jesus because of what you said. Um, and some of us, it, B could be for banana, B could be for ball, B could be for help the boy. Bible. Why did nobody say that? We had no Christian nerds in the whole thing. You said it? Well, if you talk like a mouse, I can't hear you. I'm hard of hearing, hard of seeing, okay? Now, B is for Bible. C is for cat. We all get that one. This is the Bible's version of that to get us to appreciate, to fall in love with, to keep and enjoy God's words. Now, it, it can be a very daunting task. This book is enormous. This is called the thin line version that I have here. I have Bibles that I'm sure would knock a human out if they just fell off a shelf and hit them in the head. The thin line version is over a thousand pages. I've got pocket versions. They're over a thousand pages too. I just can't read them anymore. I've got study Bibles that are over 3,000 pages. And if you approach this book and say, okay, I'm going to read the Bible. I, 
I didn't set my resolution because I'm an anti-resolution person, but I know the Bible is good for me. I'm just going to start. Here's how it goes. We start with the familiar stories. Adam and Eve. Oh, yeah, I know that story. I've read that. Adam and Eve, the sneaky snake. It all goes bad. Boom, boom, boom. Murder comes in. Babel comes on. The Tower of Babel. No one can talk to each other. Noah, flood. It's just crazy. And then all of a sudden you get to Exodus. Oh, I know this story. You know the story of the first two chapters of Exodus because Charlton Heston or the Prince of Egypt, depending on how old you are. But then after that, you're like, I have no idea what's going on. And then you get the Ten Commandments. Oh, I've heard some of these rules somewhere. And then you get into Numbers. Numbers. There are three types of people that like the book of Numbers. One, people that lie to you. Two, nerds. Three, nerds that lie to you. Does that make sense? No, that didn't make sense. I love the book of Numbers. It's an amazing book, but it becomes very repetitive because you start to read in a lot of these books in the Old Testament, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Now, it would be way more interesting if they gave us the Days of Our Lives soap opera version. So-and-so met so-and-so at this restaurante. You know, sort of like a telenovela maybe. And they just drew it all out for us. But they don't do that. The Bible just says this person to this person to this person to this person. And if you happen to get through Leviticus, which is 101 ways to kill a goat, and then Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, you're going to get to Joshua and Judges, and you're going to say, I, I kind of remember some of the main characters. I don't know how many turtle doves I'm supposed to kill in the chapel parking lot this weekend. I mean, I was bad. Is it goat-worthy? I but then we spin out, our wheels lose traction, in large part because we don't understand that this book is 66 separate books written over a thousand-year period by over 40 authors meant to communicate one primary story. Many of us approach this book with principles and say that the Bible says this, so I must do this. Many of us see the Bible as uh, one of the analogies that I heard early on was basic instructions before leaving earth. See, some of you have heard that too. It, it's not basic. That sounds like an alien sci-fi show. Do you, sometimes as Christians, we need to step back. And if you're not a believer, you can mock Christians with me. We just need to step back and say, does this sound crazy? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Just say it in an English accent, say it in an alien accent, and say it in a southern accent. And if any of those sound crazy, it might be a little bit crazy. Because the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is the story of God's reckless people turning from him and God's absolute patience and steadfastness walking with them until the Messiah would come. The story of the Bible is not a story of amazingly perfect people. It's a story of amazingly saved sinners. Every character in the Bible, save one, Jesus, is shown to have flaws and to be flawed. And if we approach the Bible as, I'm going to emulate these characters because they're in the Bible, your life will go very, very bad. Whether it's starting in Adam and Eve and just not listening to God, or maybe it's Abraham and Sarah. That's the non-model for marriage. Father Abraham tried to sell his wife to another man. I've said it before, every Valentine's Day, it comes up in my head, and I say it again. Husbands, never sell your wife to another man. Like, this should be basic knowledge. Or if you're King David, a man after God's own heart, we know the story, David and Bathsheba. It's not good to look at someone's wife who is not your own. Now, we can say these principles, and they are good principles, and they are true principles. And this whole book is about God's law and how much this author says, I love it, I live for it, I need to treasure it. 
But so often we forget and we disconnect it from the purpose of the Bible, which is to point us to our need for a Messiah, which is to point us to Jesus. We, if we approach the Bible as a book full of good advice, then we will fall woefully short of its purpose. The purpose of the Bible primarily is not to give us good advice, but to point us to a good savior. It has a lot of good advice. It is full of a lot of good principles that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I will tell business people often, hey, go read Proverbs and here, check this proverb out and this proverb and apply these principles to your business and it will go better for you. Because there's a way that God hardwired the universe and we have stepped out of that hardwiring and tried to write our own code. But God says, if you come to do these things, life will generally go better for you. That's what the book of Proverbs is about. But in the scheme of the whole story of God, we have to understand that this book is trying to get us to realize our need for someone to rescue us from our constant pattern of foolishness. So we're going to keep reading. Verse 9. And from here on out, we're going to read uh, a few verses at each letter of the alphabet. So if you're following in your Bible, you can just, you'll see what we're doing. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, here's what's really good about the Bible. When you have a Bible story or principle, it's good to give structure. So with my children, I have a very basic philosophy of parenting. If they are hard-hearted, I give them the law. So in the Bible, the law is like, don't murder, don't kill, don't steal, don't hit your sister, don't hit your brother, be kind, all of these things, part of the law. When my kids are hard-hearted, when they're being stubborn, I need to come back and and give them what the Bible gave us. The Bible is two-thirds law, one-third the New Testament. Old Testament is a lot of the law. The New Testament shows us how God rescued us and saved us from our transgressions, from our breaking the law. But with kids, they need to understand right and wrong. And sometimes we just have to give it to them the good old-fashioned way. You know, this is wrong, here is why, here is your punishment. I'm becoming better as a father, I think, though, because um, I used to get a little bit more angry, and I would just sort of soar up to anger mode and use my bad dad voice. Um, But now I found that with my oldest son, uh, I gave him technology for Christmas. And I'm really excited about this um, for a couple of reasons. One is I have no idea what I'm doing with uh, this technology. I'm very tech savvy, but I'm thinking, I didn't have a cell phone until I was in college. And that's mostly because they didn't really exist. Uh, I had a pager. And we all know, if you had a pager with me, we were all on 1-800-SMART-BEEP or whatever that was, because it was $24.99 a year, and you could choose, like, I'm not going to call this person back. Or you could tell your mother, Mom, I'm sorry, I didn't really have a quarter at least one of those times. Um, but with a cell phone now, my son has it, and I've got all these apps on there. So I'm basically just a a biological-related stalker. That's what I've become since Christmas. I am a, I'm biologically related to a human being who I thoroughly stalk. I stalk where they are. I mean, it's incredible. I'm like, oh, he's at the park. Oh, he's on his bike. Oh, there he goes. And I had to step back and think, this is getting a little creepy. And then I'll do like any parent should. Um, my kid has no social media. The only social media I want him to use is his mouth and ears right now, okay? You can talk and listen. I don't want you typing to people that I don't know. But uh, as I'm watching him now, I'm like, okay, let's see what he's looking at on YouTube. And he only has kids' YouTube. Don't freak out, parents. I'm not totally irresponsible. So I'll look at what he's looking at on YouTube. I'll go to his web search history. Okay, I see what he's looking at. He's obsessed with this word. I have no idea what it means, but the word is derpy, 
D-E-R-P-Y. So if one of you has some more parental wherewithal than I do, please let me know. It means like stupid or silly or something, but he's Googled about 100 derpy things. Derpiest Pokemon, derpiest things, derpy. He Googled derpy dad. I was about to kill him. Anyway, um, so I was uh, trying to figure, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I navigate this technology? So I, I've begun to give him rules and law. And because I gave him this technology, it's become the easiest um, punishment that I've ever had. I'm so grateful that I gave him a phone. So now when he does something, I say, here's the law that you broke. I love you. You're forgiven by Jesus. I'll forgive you soon. I'll come around to it. But now I get your phone. And all of a sudden, his behavior is stellar. All of a sudden, he will do anything. He will become the most loving human in my family. He will walk up to my wife and he'll say, mommy, can I feel baby Bella? That's the baby in my wife's tummy in case you're wondering. Um, he'll say, can I feel baby Bella? Uh, yesterday was my mom's birthday and he sent her this sweet, amazing text. I can't remember what it says, but you can harass my mom afterward and ask her. It was something like, Nana, I love you. You're so amazing and special. Blah, 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 something, something. Now that was so sweet and so kind. And then, and then my mom came into my house and and she said, oh, here's Silas's card. And Jackson, where's your card? And he goes, oh, I texted you my card because he doesn't understand social etiquette. So it's another opportunity to teach. You, you teach your kids, they fall short. You teach your kids, they fall short. You teach your kids, they fall short. And we keep pointing them to the next step of life. Now, some of us think that when we fall short with God, he's going to be done with us. He's going to be done with us. Some of us think that if we fall short with God, then his wrath is coming, flat tires are coming, financial distress is coming, marital distress is coming. Some of us believe that if we, the more we break his word, the more God's going to dislike us and have a disdain for us, the more God's going to remove his favor from us. But, but the Bible has good news for us because in, in this verse, there's two things we have to learn. And one of them is what I'm doing with my kid. Verse 11, memorize this verse if you memorize no other verses. I have stored up your word in my heart. Or if you're reading the NIV, it says, Lord, I've, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Put the law of God inside of you. Get your eyeballs on the Bible and it will hold you back from sin. This is what I'm doing with my kids. It's the reason why when I gave him his phone, I said, here's kids YouTube, here's your Bible app. And I want to see, and I can see how many minutes he's spending on his Bible app. And I could lock down apps and then just leave one of them available. It's really cruel, but I think it's working to make him hate me later in life. So we're going to keep going. Because this, this part is where I start to love it. Verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. So this, this author, he's read the Bible. He's meditated on the Bible. He's loved the Bible. But now he says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. You answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. This writer is saying, my soul clings to the dust. My soul is downcast. I'm at the bottom of life. Please teach me. And it says, when I told you what I was going through, you answered me. Teach me more of your statutes. There is a, a lack of hunger, I think, in many, many followers of Jesus because we don't have the need. We as followers of God often grow on a need-to-know and need-to-grow basis. We don't go into here until there's a need that we have. We are need-driven human beings. For example, um, some of you are hungry. There's a need welling up in you right now for food. I could make it worse. I could say, 
man, I just had this morning the most amazing pizza. It was smothered in fresh mozzarella. It was a brick oven pizza. The crust was crispy yet fluffy. And when I picked the pizza off, I felt my mouth begin to fill with saliva and I had to fold it in half. It was such a delicious thin crust pizza with Italian sausage, pepperoni, and mozzarella cheese. And then I ate it. Now, some of you hate me because you, you're still doing your silly New Year's health thing. The, la the laughing people are those people. I hate you. I get hate mail all the time. It's my favorite thing to read. I, I need you to understand, though, the reason that you are like, some of you, maybe pizza is not your thing. Maybe I should have used a sushi illustration or something. But whatever it is, you have a need for food, and you want to satiate it. I believe the reason why most people come to the early service, because uh, I would be an early service person. I don't know what these second service people do. I would be here because I don't like waiting in line for my food later. I don't like standing there while person after person gets sat in front of me. I went out this night uh, with my wife and another couple, and, uh, and I said, yeah, don't worry, I'll take care of the reservation, which I did not take care of. So we were standing in Boca on Thursday night for 45 minutes. For 45 minutes, roasted chickens went by my nose. For 45 minutes, I saw Brussels sprouts covered in something. For 45 minutes, I saw people get food item after food item after food item. People walked in after me, but they were smart enough to have a reservation. By the time we got our food, I think it took me a grand total of 45 seconds to eat it all because I was so famished. Most of us, most of us don't have that same hunger for the word of God. And I think it's because most of us have tried to satisfy our spiritual hunger with something else. We've put something else in the place of leading us to God. We've put something else in the place of keeping us on the track of good. We've put something else in the place of giving us a sense of security or purpose in life. So we just don't. So they get dusty. Now, with the number of Bibles in the world, I, I think it's remarkable how underread they can be. Um, like I said, the Bible is the most uh, best-selling book of all time. Fun fact. It's also the most stolen book of all time. I thought that was interesting, and that's probably because people steal them from the hotels. The Gideons are doing a great job. Um, if you want to steal a Bible today, you're welcome to steal any Bible on the back table. Don't steal a Bible on someone's lap next to you. I'm just being clear on that. But, but we don't go to the Bible until we have a need. I see this over and over again because in the ministry, people do that thing where they only come to you when they're at the end of their rope. They only come to you when it's the 11th hour, when there, is, there seems to be no other way out, and then they come and they say, I need help. I need help. My fill-in-the-blank is falling apart. I need help. My fill-in-the-blank addiction is taking over and ruining my life. I need help. And I know this happens. I understand why we don't come out with it sooner, because we as human beings have the stain of pride within us. We want to appear to be something that we're not. This is why we all smile at each other on Sunday mornings. This is why. Part of the reason why I walk in the parking lot in the beginning of service, I like doing laps and I pray, but I also get to see how some of you come out of the cars. And in particular, I pay attention to families because I know how I get out of the car sometimes with my kids. And it's, it's like you think 
that your Toyota Prius is soundproof. It's not. And, and some of you, I, I, I look at you coming out of the car with your spouse. And it's, it's funny. I, I want to make people have a great life and a great day. When I encounter someone, I want them to walk away and say, man, I'm pumped for the day. So that's why I'm out there smiling, being goofy today. I even put on a priest collar because one of my Catholic friends said when he wears one, everyone's nice. And I took it off because I didn't want to be too sacrilegious today. Um, I'm going to do it for the second service. Sorry, guys. And, um, but, but in that, in that, I see people here get out of their car, and you could just tell. Like, I'm, a, I'm not a veteran in marriage. I'm 10 years. So I made it past the first itch, like the seven-year itch, and I, I haven't been scratchy at all. Um, I'm feeling great. Love my wife. But I know, when you're married, you know. You see another couple, and you go, oh, dang. They are in something. And I say, hey, how's it going? And, and they'll see me from the parking lot, because my mom says I have a voice that carries. So while they're talking, I'm listening. At, I say, hey, ha, ha. And people go, hey, we're great. I'm like, okay, you're lying to me. That's a double sin, because I'm a pastor. Triple sin if I'm wearing my new collar. I don't know why we all tend to do this. I'd do it. I'll, I'll have to stop myself sometimes when I sit down with a friend. They say, how are you doing? And I'll do the normal thing. Good. And they'll say, no, no, how are you doing? Okay. No, no, how are you doing? Sometimes I feel like people are just trying to make you angry and depressed and sad about life because they go lower and lower. How are you doing? Good. How are you, no, how are you doing? No, how are you really doing? Why do we do lower? Why don't we get happier? How are, no, how are you doing, man? Well, man. Because we don't want to risk opening up our lives to someone else. Because when you open your life up to someone else, you give them the opportunity to hurt you more deeply. This is why your closest friends, your spouse, your kids, they're the ones that can hurt you at the deepest points of your soul. The acquaintances, they can bug you, they can frustrate you, but the people that can cause you the most emotional damage and torment are those who you have let in behind the walls. And it's good. It's good, and I need you to understand that this is good if we can get to the point where we can say, God loves me. My soul clings, my soul clings to him. My soul clings to his word. My soul is rooted in here because the more you plant yourself in God's book, the more you'll realize that you are loved beyond what you could have ever imagined. The more you'll realize that no matter how many times you have messed up, God has already ahead of the curve of your foolishness said, I chose you, I died for you, I live for you, so come with me. The more we can understand and lean on that truth of God, the less likely we are to put up our barriers and walls to make ourselves appear something that we're not. This is the beauty of God's word. In, in Hebrews chapter four, it says that God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. So God's word will cut us and reveal things to us. God's word can get down to the core of who we truly are. And in that moment, when all of the wrong things you have done, when all of the wrong attitudes that you have had are laid before God, and he says, I knew those were there, and I still love you, you're mine. When you can rest in that, everything else can become so much easier. It's why I, I like to try to be quick to apologize. I, I love it, and I, I share this because it's the only living, constant illustration in my life. 
When someone comes up to me, if it's my wife, she comes up to me and says, she'll say something like, man, that was terrible. I can't believe you did that. I'll start to just break down and I'll say, I'm so sorry. I think I'm even worse than that. It's just mind-boggling that God would love me. It's mind-boggling that God would love a kid who would come to know him and then throw his Bible off of a three-story balcony. It's mind-boggling that God would love someone who pursued every other thing in life. I pursued drugs. I pursued girls. I pursued alcohol. Before I got to God, I had looked for things to satisfy me. And God said, oh, I, I love that guy. God chose the murderer Saul and made the apostle Paul. God chose the fisherman Peter and made him the pillar of the church. Peter, a fisherman. Have you guys met many fishermen? I don't think fishermen change much. Fishermen are people that I think of like, you know, kind, clean language, excelente behavior and hygiene. No, I, my brother's a fisherman. I've got friends here that are fishermen. I mean, these are the people who get a hook in their finger and they let it go. These are people who, who are out in the water thinking they're all alone. So they develop quirky habits of sin and language. But we all do this in our own pockets. We all have the fishermen within us. And so you understand that God will lay your life open with his word, and then he will still say, I love you and accept you because I sent my son to die for you. Until you get there, you're going to be pretending. You're going to be defending. You're not going to be letting people in. Now, letting people in is terrifying. My most morbid thing that I tell people when I'm doing premarital counseling is this. Um, before they get married, I tell them this before they get married, so it's free advice for all of you who are married, and now you'll understand some things about your life. I say, here's what's happening on your wedding day. Now, you don't need to picture this, but I need you to know that this is what's happening spiritually. On your wedding day, you are handing a weapon to the other person, and you are turning it on yourself, and you are pulling the cocking mechanism back, and you are aiming it at your emotions and soul and being, and you're putting their finger on the trigger, and when you make your vows, you're saying, I believe you will not pull the trigger. Because in a marriage, you're opening up your life deeper than any other relationship, and you're giving someone the opportunity to go into the middle of your life and implode it if they want to. We call this divorce or separation or adultery or affairs or abuse. Those are the words we use for that. When you stand there on your wedding day, you give someone intimate access into your life. Now, some of you have been on the wrong end of that. Some of you have had your significant other pull the metaphorical trigger, and your life has become unraveled because of it. I need you to understand that God is the one person that will never pull that trigger. God is the one person who will see into the depths of who you are and say, I choose you, I love you, I accept you, be mine. So here we go. How does this happen? We're going to jump to verse 41. Let your steadfast law come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The promise of what is to come. Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. 
I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Verse 65, you have dealt with You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Do you guys believe his commandments today? I pray you do. Verse 73, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. Do you want to hear one of my... Funniest marriage fails. Early in marriage, I love the I love this book. I've had the privilege of being a pastor, which means I get to read this during the day. I know a lot of you have to work and, and do things like that. I get to I work, I answer emails, and then I'm like reading this book, and I get paid for it. It's the most ridiculous thing that this could be a vocation. I love it. Um, but there were times in my life where I, I had a, a quote real job. You know, I didn't just work on quote Sundays and um, working in retail, working in uh, pharmaceuticals, biotech industry. So I had to read my Bible like the rest of humanity outside of the workday for the most part. And, and that's why I love engaging and talking with people because some pastors, we get weird and we forget that people work like 40, 50, 60 hours. And then we're like, oh, if only you could volunteer for 10 hours and read your Bible 17 hours a day, then your life will go well. And sometimes I sit down with these super pastors and I say, hey man, these people are tired. Like they need rest. So don't put these unrealistic expectations because when I was working, I'd drive down a 45-minute commute and then I'd drive back up a 45-minute commute after working all day. The last thing I wanted to do was sit down and like press my mind into difficult literary study. So I understand that struggle. But in those moments, I still would try to press into my Bible. I would change my schedule because we all waste an inordinate amount of time. So I changed my schedule and I began reading my Bible. I'd read it everywhere. And I would read it in the car. I has Amy, can you drive so I could read my Bible? And one day she just got fed up with it. I remember where we were. We were at my in-law's driveway. We had just pulled in, and I had like, been reading my Bible on this whole drive wherever we were coming from. And she said, you read that Bible more than you talk to me. And I said, with all wisdom of stupidity, it's because I love Jesus more than I love you. That's one of those things that, like, your wife will never let you forget. I'm going to be on my deathbed, and she's going to say, hope you love Jesus more now, sucker. You know, she's just going to, she's going to lay it on me because I, I hurt her that day. But it was true. I wanted to hear more from Jesus than I did from her because my, my wife, she's amazing. She takes care of my kids. She, she uh, led us to the home where we live in. We bought a magic house. In our house, it has that magic trick where I can literally throw my pants anywhere and they end up folded in my closet somehow. I don't know how. Dinner is amazing. My wife is one of the most uh, brilliant cooks. It, she takes care of so much. She loves me. When some of you get mad at me, she'll stand in defense of me. When some of you uh, have said hurtful things or said hurtful things, she'll lift me up. She's a partner to the end of, of everything I've done. She, she will never give up on me. But she holds nothing to what Jesus has done for me. She can mold me, shape me, influence me. Jesus changed me. I went from an extremely angry person to a person whose life flipped upside down in a short span of time. My, my mother put my brothers in Christian school 
we're spread out. I'm, I'm 36, almost 37 there, 20-something, 20 29. My brother's 29, then my youngest brother, 28. Then my youngest brother, what is that? It's me, 36, 28, and then 19. Those are my brothers, so we're spread out. I was a, hu a terrible human being, and my mother's here. You can ask her. She's right back there in the corner. My father-in-law's here. You can ask him, too. He'll probably vouch for my terribleness. Uh, when God got a hold of me, my mom said, I'm putting your little brothers in Christian school because whatever God did to you, I hope he does it to them because I was a terrible human being. I'm not using that word lightly, a terrible human being. I said things to mothers that should never be said to humans. It was God's word that was planted in me that began to grow and it took away desires that were bad and replaced them with desires that were good. We call this process in the church salvation so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are not saved by obeying the law. However, Galatians says we are saved by faith. The law shows us what's wrong and how broken we are. Faith in Jesus brings us into a relationship with God. The reason why I didn't wear my collar today, my part of it is because it's cardstock that I cut out with safety scissors in the kids' ministry before service. Was because... Um, and let me tell you, the reason I want to wear it is because my friend said, my Catholic friend said, because I put it on and everyone's kind. It's like magic. And I'm like, I need kindness. But then I put it on, and it was weird because I was in the bathroom, stepping it under. Like I said, I'm going to wear it. As soon as this sermon's over, I'm getting it. I thought, I, I need to understand that this collar, what, what they wear it for is to symbolize that they are saints and priests. that They are loved by God, agents of God. In reality, all of us should wear some mark. Not physically, you don't have to wear a cross necklace or wear nerdy Christian shirts, but we should have something that says, I'm a follower of God, and it should be, the Bible says, our life that produces good fruit. You're not going to know how to walk and live with him if you're not in this book. So if you do nothing else this week, I would ask that you do one thing. Hop on the chapel's webpage. Web it's uh, thechapelfh.org. If you can remember, slash Bible. That's the web address. It's got these six videos to teach you how to read the Bible, to help you understand plots and characters, because it is hard. And each video is only five minutes, and it has cartoons so anyone can understand them. Please take time this week to really evaluate what you read and what you put your hope and trust in, because that is what will shape your life toward Jesus or away from Jesus. My prayer is that you will run toward him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, we have the opportunity to read your eternal, everlasting word. God, I pray that we would not squander the freedom that we have in this country, that we would not squander the amount of Bibles that we have, that we would read them, study them, chew on them, and Lord, help us to get involved in a community group to learn more about them. And Lord, help us never to make it about religion, and rules and do's and don'ts help us to always, first and foremost, make it about your love for us and what you have done for us on the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.